This is Shadow Talk, your weekly dose of cybersecurity news and threat intelligence. Today, it's all things phishing. To begin with, we cover the arrest of three alleged members of the Fin7 organized criminal group. We go over the US Department of Justice's indictment and provide some key observations on Fin7's operation, including how sophisticated phishing and social engineering are the cornerstones of the group's success. Then, we broaden things out and look at phishing more generally including the threats from business email compromise and mouse spam. All this on today's Shadow Talk. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host, Rafael Amao. Joining me this week, we have Rose Bernard, Strategic Intelligence Manager here at Digital Shadows. Hi, Raf. How are you? Very good, thank you. And also Simon Hall, Senior Security Engineer. How are you doing, Simon? I'm good, thanks. Yourself, Raf? Yeah, very good. Very good. Good. We begin with events on the 1st of August when the US Department of Justice filed criminal charges against three men reported to be associated with the organized criminal group known as Fin7. Now, Rose, a few of our listeners may not be too familiar with this group. So can you give us a short summary on who Fin7 are and some of their previous activity? Sure. So Fin7 are a financially motivated threat group who were first observed in March 2017 in a series of attacks against personnel involved with Security and Exchange Commission filings at US-based organizations. And they've essentially been using a very similar script ever since. And what they do is they largely target organizations in the US, and we've seen them targeting the transportation, the retail, the education, and the IT and technology sectors. And they send a series of spear phishing emails that are really well crafted in an attempt to convince an employee to open an attachment. These emails will often be followed up by a call from somebody pretending to be the person who sent the email to further encourage that. And then the attachment allows Fin7 a way to get into the company's network. They then conduct extensive reconnaissance on the network, they'll map it out, and then eventually they exfiltrate any sensitive information. So credit card details, personally identifiable information, uh, credentials, and then they monetize it. So they'll either use it themselves in financial fraud or they've been seen or they have potentially been seen to sell it on the dark web. And what's really interesting about those tactics is that we've all heard the advice about spear phishing, right? You don't open an email from a suspicious sender if it's from a stranger. It's like opening an email is like the equivalent of being told not to talk to strangers when you're a a kid. Um, But they targeted companies whose businesses are made out of talking to strangers. So hotels, restaurants, anybody who you might not know for who it would be normal to get an email from somebody being like, hey, I think I left my bag in your hotel. Here's a picture of the bag. Have you seen it? And so they've been, they've been quite crafty. And then recently, the arrests of these three Ukrainian nationals who are allegedly involved with the group, and I'm going to try and pronounce their names, so bear with me. We've got Dmitry Fedorov, Fedor Haldir, and Andrei Kopakov. And this is, each have been charged with about 26 felony counts, I think. And these are ranging from conspiracy to computer hacking to identity theft, which just shows you 
the breadth of activities that this group engaged in. Now, one thing that confuses a lot of people is the association between Fin7 and other sophisticated groups such as Carbonac, also known as Ananac. Now, are these groups one and the same? That's a really difficult question. And my instinct is to say that there is no definitive evidence saying that these groups are the same. So a lot of this confusion stems from the fact that uh, Carbonac group are so called because they use a piece of malware called Carbonac. And that piece of malware isn't exclusive to that group. It can, in fact, be used by other groups, which is how we saw it being used by Fin7. So yes, they've both used the Carbonac malware. Does that necessarily mean they're the same group? No, not really. To uh, jump in on that, I think that's exactly right. I mean, Carbonac is so-called due, as you say, due to the uh, the name of the malware uh, used. Um, but there are also other links to Joker Stash and a, a few other things for, for this Fin7 group. And there's a lot of talk about there being subgroups from, from Fin7. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, there may be ties there, but it's, it's impossible to say uh, whether these groups are one and the same, to be honest. To speak to that point, actually, the idea of subgroups is a really interesting one. And it's certainly one that we have to take into consideration when we think about the impact of these arrests. So yes, it is really impressive that they've managed to track down three members and clearly they've got a lot of information about this group's infrastructure, the shell companies they're using, all of their TTPs. But if we're saying this is a really sophisticated threat group with a bunch of subgroups, is the arrest of three members going to change that much? I don't, I don't know. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, as you say, when you're looking at three members for this particular one, um, which actually brings us on to one of the, the key things here is the, the creation of Combi Security. Mm. Um, so which is the company that they, they created to, to give a, an air of legitimacy, sorry, an air of uh, legitimacy um, about them. So, I mean, they're reportedly recruiting um, both pen testers and developers under this company uh, banner. Um, and, you know, whether they were having legitimate engagements, I'm not sure. So, they're, you know, from the reports, they're saying that some of these employees were unaware of the the activities that were being carried out by this company. I mean, you only have to do a quick Google Doc or look, to, uh, look at LinkedIn and you're able to identify a few um, candidates who potentially were employed by them. But it doesn't you know, mean that they were. Anyone can add the, uh, the company name to their profile. But yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah, but I mean, the tactic of having kind of people employed legitimately by threat groups is something that we've seen with Russian APT groups before. And it's a way of kind of parceling out bits of your um, bits of your development and appearing legitimate because nobody's going to suspect it if it's being built by a legitimate pen tester or computer programmer. And it, yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. And it also just shows, you know, the how advanced the group are really to go to those extents mm. of uh, creating job advertisements, creating a whole company. Um, it's not just a, a random team of uh, hackers out there who are just going out after anyone that they can. These guys had a lot of backing um, and a lot of skill. You know, definitely free people are not going to make any impact yeah. on this organization at all. <laughs> I really liked the idea that they use um, Atlassian Jira. Did you read that to keep I, track of their projects? 
I did, yeah. And this is also something that jumped out at me using Jira <laughs> and HipChat as well for communications. So they were creating Jira tickets apparently for uh, to track the progress of their attacks against certain organizations. So, you know, I can just imagine them assigning each other tasks. You can do lateral movement on this or you can access the POS system. I mean, modern, modern organized crime group. I've got a lot of time for that. An organized crime group runs like a modern organized business. Yeah. Yeah, let's go into the indictment into a bit more detail. We've already touched on, on some of the most interesting aspects of it. Targeted 3,600 business locations across the US, the UK, Australia, and France, including companies in over 47 US states. Compromised 6,500 individual point-of-sale terminals. Stolen more than 15 million customer card records. I mean, this just paints a picture of a very sophisticated group who have performed a lot of operations and a lot of successful attacks. I mean, Simon and Rose, were there any other things that stood out to you? Um, I mean, for me, as I say, the, I think the key takeaway was the, the whole combi security thing. But as you say, there was a lot of locations compromised. And I think it was uh, about 120 different companies that were uh, compromised in total with about 3,600 locations. And uh, I forget, was it about 16 million credit cards and debit card details that were taken, taken from this. But as uh, Rose touched on, um, from the reports, it sounds like they were barely using any of this information themselves. The credit card details, they were selling them across on forums and there was evidence of this, um, which is quite interesting, you know, going to this whole, this whole effort of creating shell companies and everything else. But the end, of, end game is just to sell on those credit card details. That's quite an interesting uh, methodology they have there. Yeah, that was a bit surprising to me. I mean, you've got a very, obviously, sophisticated group here who have a lot of capability, running a lot of operations, and yet their output seems to be on quite going to quite a popular yet reputable carding site yeah. or ABC to basically to sell everything. I wonder if they're, they're probably performing some other activity alongside that. This is maybe just a way for them to get rid of the payment cards. Yeah, yeah I mean, when you look back at Carbonac, for instance, and we're saying about the link between the uh, Fin7 and Carbonac, Carbonac obviously had their own mules and networks for cashing out on these sort of things. So, I mean, they were dedicated to banking more so than credit card theft. But, you know, if you were to say there was a link between them or they were the same, you would have thought they would have had their own mule system to be able to to do cash outs of these credit cards and, and get as much coin as they can rather than sell them on the uh, on the forum. So it does kind of indicate there is some separate separation there or totally different entities. Yeah, I think um, to speak to that, a bit further this idea that they just you know they steal all this data and then we see them trying and selling it you know to take this completely back to thefts offline if you steal something big you need a fence you need somebody to sell that on and to get this kind of proper monetary value and i think that what we've seen from previous big dumps online of both information and tools is that actually there aren't a lot of people out there with the money to buy a big dump you know, as a whole parcel. So you either have to separate it out into tiny little parcels, which is a huge amount of resource, and or there is a huge part of their activity that we just don't know anything about yet, which I think is probably the most likely possibility. That's a, a very interesting point. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this because another piece that came out was they were using a custom 
um, tool for recording desktop activities for users. So they were able to record potentially uh, credentials that are being used or any other activity that each of the, the targets were doing. Um, so, I mean, with this kind of perspective and you know the talk about them selling this information, it may not have just been credit card details that they were selling as possible. Mm-hmm. As you say, they're separating this out and you've got usernames and passwords for different services. You've got emails, you've got um, probably uh, addresses and various other bits and pieces of information that could have all been monetized in some way. So, you know, I haven't seen much talk about that, but to be honest, if you've got that kind of access and you're going to the effort recording desktops on, on these targets, then why wouldn't you uh, cash out on those as well. Now, I'm glad we discussed Fin7 in this detail as they're a perfect example of how phishing is still the most common entry point into an organization, with the most sophisticated and even the least advanced attackers still relying on it. Now, Simon, maybe asking the obvious here, but why is phishing such a successful method of attack? Um, well, I mean, if you look back five, ten years ago, um, phishing was still utilized, but it wasn't utilized as heavy as it is now. Um, so, I mean, previously when there wasn't as much in, uh, in the way of patching or security policies, organizations had a lot more exposure and um, exploitable services, whether that's misconfiguration or weak services. And I think we've touched on this previously in previous podcasts. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of services out there that were heavily misconfigured or even vendors um, didn't supply patches for a lot of the the known vulnerabilities in a, a timely manner. So it was a lot easier to to gain access to an organization for an exploit rather than having to go for an individual um, to be able to get into an organization. But now when you, you look at the, the effort a lot of vendors are putting into patching their their products, and especially when you look at Windows being the primary operating system for a lot of organizations. Again, five, 10 years ago, Windows was a nightmare for security. Um, and it was fairly easy to, to try and you know, gain a foothold, even from an external pers- perspective. But you come to, to modern day, everything's patched. Um, there are still known vulnerabilities and CMSs and stuff like this and web servers. That infrastructure is isolated, so it'd be a lot more difficult to perform lateral movement across there. Uh, so when you come to phishing, you're you're looking at being able to jump directly into the the target's organisation. So if you're able to successfully fish a candidate within an organisation, you're straight onto their corp network potentially. Phishing has become a key element into gaining a foothold within an organisation. And Rose, one of the most prevalent phishing threats facing organizations in, in all different industries is what we call business email compromise. Can you explain what we mean by business email compromise and how these attacks are typically performed? So generally speaking, business email compromise is where a threat actor pretends to be or spoofs the email address of somebody high up within a company, say the CEO or an executive, and sends an email from you know, in extreme examples, their address, which they've managed to compromise, or an email address, which is very, very similar to an employee, uh, either with access to payroll or financial transactions, or, you know, with privileged IT access, asking for something, either asking for credentials or sending them a document to open. And then, you know, the unsuspecting employee opens this because it's from their CEO, and you're afraid of, you know, not doing what your CEO tells you. 
and then they compromise the system. I have seen, I guess we have seen as a, an industry, a decrease in the, the Beck stuff, in the business um, email compromise stuff. Obviously, there's been a ramp up in ransomware campaigns and, and mount spam in general. But there has been, I think, a, a decrease in this uh, business email compromise stuff. Yeah, I think, I think in some senses, though, at certain times of the year, there seem to be more reports mm-hmm. of business email compromise attempts. I know when we were looking at uh, tax season, for example, in the spring, that seemed to be a time where there were more cases of business email compromise attempts being reported. And it was either someone pretending to be an accountant or a CFO, but as well as, as you say, Rose, people spoofing executives or compromising an employee account, there's also this supplier angle. So mm-hmm. someone will impersonate a supplier um, and say, look, he's the lowest for this invoice or impersonate someone like a lawyer or some sort of type of representative that might have privilege at access. Yeah, I mean, the, the supplier angle, I think, is is a key thing here as well, like with phishing in general. Um, third parties are now quite often, I think there was even mention of it in one of the indictments as well, and that Fin7 apparently used um, third parties as well to to gain that level of trust. So compromise a third party, again, probably through phishing, and then use that as a, a point to be able to send emails from that organization to their their true target and then they've got that layer of trust there as well so i think the the third party and supplier angle for for phishing is is quite a key one now simon you've been working on analyzing spam email campaigns recently are there any interesting findings so far any observations that you can share with us seeing as we're speaking about phishing yeah i mean just mouse spam in general as you say we see a lot of this coming through um through our spam traps and everything else and you know daily we're seeing floods of thousands of uh, of invoice scams are the main one um and a lot of people look at these and think well you know they're, they're poorly crafted um there's a lot of grammatical errors you know they're spoofing domains or, or whatever else and they will get picked up by spam uh, by some spam filters. Uh, but the thing is, the volume that these mouse spam campaigns are done on, be it an invoice scam or um, a HMRC or the recent Debenhams um, mouse spam campaigns as well, the volume that they do these on is not hundreds, it's generally not thousands, it's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. So when you send them out on that volume, you are going to get some people and they don't need to get everybody. And that's the thing about um, the mouse spam campaigns is they don't need to get everyone. They don't expect to get everyone, but you get a handful of people and you're going to be able to monetize that. Obviously, when we're talking about phishing, there is the the downside for the victims or multiple downsides for the victims. And I think there's a lot of stigma um, about phishing victims in general. I see a lot of comments from people who are shaming people who have actually uh, fallen victim to a phishing campaign. If you're shaming people for falling victim to to these campaigns, future uh, emails and fish that come through, they're never going to want to report those to you. And the same as any of their colleagues, if they hear about someone being shamed or reprimanded for opening a document, again, it will never get reported in the future. So there was one particular case recently, um, someone was talking about, I think one of these um, extortion emails that were coming through saying that someone's got um, footage of something someone watched on the laptop and here's a password for proof. And there was someone on a comment 
posting that they would never fall for a fish and people that do are just dumb and various other bits and pieces. This has a real knock-on effect with people because, again, if someone does fall for this, they're never going to want to report it and then you've then potentially got a compromised device in your network. But also, you know, you want people to be able to to come forward and report these things um, because it may just be a one-off person who's actually had this email. And again, if they've been shamed in the past, they're never going to report it. From that, we've got one potential mitigation piece of advice, which is organisations need to have some sort of process, some sort of reporting procedure for their employees to report phishing, yeah. um, even if they have clicked on something and they have been compromised. What, what other sort of measures can we, can we give our listeners for avoiding phishing or dealing with phishing incidents? Um, so I think from the, the main thing, like mass um, mouse spam and mass phishing campaigns in general, um, due to the volume, uh, they have to be pretty generic. Um, so they don't have people's names normally. So they're starting the emails with dear sir or madam or good morning, good afternoon. But there's a very generic nature about them. They've never got any personal information. It's very impersonal in general. So that's one thing to look out for. But I think identifiers in phishing emails in general, there's never one thing, there's multiple things. So again, you're looking at the the kind of uh, impersonal nature of the email. Uh, Grammatical and formatting errors as well. Quite often, a lot of these phishing emails will just be text and they may have a footer in the bottom of the email um, and a few other bits and pieces to try and lure you in and convince you they're who are they're they're saying they are but you know they're they're normally quite often quite messy and we're talking about the the kind of mass phishing here i mean when you're looking at the fin 7 stuff they were targeted um and you know it was spot on you know the the information in there was exactly what it needed to be to lure the people in but when you're looking at general phishing which is what everyone's worried about these days and what everyone's getting caught out by um you say you're looking for grammatical errors you're looking for the person personal impersonal nature of of it um mismatching information like footers and from domains so if it if it's from a certain domain and in the footer of the email sometimes they have their the main domain sometimes they're mismatching um, if you've got links in the email, it may just be a hyperlink text. So if you hover over there, you can see the, the full URL. That's quite often different to where it's expected to go to. Well, we're coming towards the end of the show. So it's that time again for some key takeaways from each of our guests. Rose, why don't you kick us off? I think my key takeaway would be that although it's tempting to kind of laud the arrest of three members of Fin7 and it is you know, very impressive but it doesn't mean that the group is done we shouldn't relax our guards we shouldn't think this is the end of fin seven this is the end of their phishing campaigns and their data exfiltration uh we should still remember that the threat landscape and the threat groups within that landscape are adapting and evolving and learning new tactics and changing so it's not an opportunity for us all to think ah that's that threat's done we can be chill about that now um, and for me, I think along the, the fishing lines, I, I think there's a, a lot can be done from victims or just people who have received these phishing emails to help out the internal security teams. Um, so for instance, exporting and zipping up the email you've received rather than just forwarding it on. Um, forwarding the email on will lose the original headers. So if you're able to export that and zip it up and send it over, that will save a lot of time for the security team to have to come back to you and ask for, for this process. 
but also mentioning things if whether you knew the source or if you expected to receive an email from the source of the, the fish as well. And this can help um, identify whether it's come from a compromised account, so they need to be notified, um, and whether it needs to go on a, a block list as well. Um, also, uh, not replying to, to the emails. So a lot of people I've seen, if they receive a suspicious email with a document attached, they'll reply to it to see if they get a reply back. If they do, then they trust it a bit more. Um, but quite often now, a lot of these are coming from compromised accounts. And they either have an, an auto-reply or there is actually a person on the other end of the keyboard with a rule, and that's intercepting those emails, and they can intercept it and reply as the other person. Um, and that's avoiding kind of getting stuck in that trust uh, model. Um, but I think the, the key takeaways for me is, is to make sure you're helping the internal security teams because obviously with these campaigns, they have a lot going on. So the more you can do to help them, uh, the, the better really. And if in doubt, just contact the security team and, uh, and raise it as a potential fish, even if you're unsure. Now, a reminder that for more content and analysis from Rose, from Simon and the wider DS team, visit resources.digitalshadows.com. It's a final thank you to my guests, Simon and Rose. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Pleasure as always. Yeah, it's great to have you on today. And thank you listeners. Have a lovely week.